All right, I will get started. I see many of you have decided to come tonight, so you're taking Lenten penance seriously, so that's a good thing. At stations, I mentioned to Beth Habesetzer that we had a good turnout. She said, yeah, but it's next week when it counts. Everybody shows up the first week. We'll see if they like you. I said, All right. So I'll begin by reading a psalm, because I am kind of into the psalms, and I will read Psalm 123, because I'll probably never get to it on the psalm series. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heaven. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Too long our soul has been sated with the scorn of those who are at ease the contempt of the proud. All right, well, welcome to this little series on the Mass. It's always wise at the beginning of something to give numerous disclaimers. So I will give numerous disclaimers. The first is I actually don't know how long this will be because I, A, almost never talk for an hour, and B, I never talk from a script or from an outline. Like I have the same outline which you have in front of me, so I don't know how much material is here. So if those who are listening to the recording at home are wondering why the recording is only 35 minutes long or something, then you know why. My plan is to talk for like 25 minutes, then we'll take a break, you can stretch your legs, go to the bathroom, and then I'm hoping I have about 15 minutes worth of material after that, and then I'll have some time at the end for questions and for answers, all right? So we'll get started. So. The, I think the way to look at all these talks is just to view them as the essence of the Mass. Like, what is the Mass? What are the parts of the Mass? Why do we do what we do? That's always sort of one of the key questions we ask ourselves, is why do we do what we do? And so, the first question you may ask is, why are we talking about the Mass, right? Is the Mass really important? Why am I spending limited time and resources discussing the Mass? And the easy answer is just to quote Vatican II and to say that the Eucharist, the most holy sacrifice of the Mass, is the source and the summit of all we do. And theologically, that is very true. This is why I always remind my staff that one of the things we have to remember in the midst of all of our administrative responsibilities, in light of all the construction projects that are constantly going on, is that at the end of the day, we're a parish. And the most important thing we do is celebrate the Mass. So we're not a school with a parish. We're a parish with a school. We're not a daycare with a parish. We're a parish with a daycare. And we have to remember that. So everything we, have, we do has to point towards the Mass or flow out of it. And theologically, that is sound. But more practically, the fact is, is that the vast majority of Catholics have their primary encounter with me, their priest, and with their parish through the Mass. And so by extension, the vast majority of Catholics encounter God through the Mass. It's different than the old days. In the old days, you had all these devotions in the parish. You'd have various groups, sodalities and confraternities. And so people would interact through these devotions with their parish. Because the devotional life, I think, unfortunately, is scaled back, 
the vast majority of people, the only time they're in contact with me, and oftentimes the only time they're in contact with God, is at the most holy sacrifice of the Mass. And that puts a lot of pressure on the Mass. But what that means is the Mass has to be celebrated very, very well, and people must know how to pray the Mass well. If the Mass is celebrated well, but you don't know how to receive it, then it's going to be in vain. St. Thomas had this old line, everything which is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. It's a fancy way of saying you receive in accord with what you are or what you're capable of. And so we have to make sure we're capable of receiving the Mass well and the graces which God wants to pour out upon you. I think we don't realize all of the graces God wants to pour out on you through the Mass. So I think that's ultimately why I decided to do this. And I think ultimately the future of the faith depends upon it. Like we have to keep Mass attendance well and we have to get people to go to Mass. It's sort of the baseline of everything else we do. And so whenever I think of like parish renewal, and I think about that a lot, because every generation has to go through renewal, just as we constantly have to convert ourselves and do penance, a parish has to constantly convert herself and be renewed. Everything always comes down to three things. And it's the three things that traditionally the Catholic Church did better than anyone else in the world. And that is truth, beauty, and goodness. So everything I do is going to be around those three things. It's going to be truth, like intellectual catechesis, psalm series, books you write as a priest, homilies you preach, something like this. Truth. You have to do truth well. You have to do beauty well. So the Mass, this Lenten season, I think a priest has to think a lot about the way his church is decorated, the vestments he uses, his hand gestures, his what we call in seminary, his Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating, the way he presents the beauty of the Lord to his people. And finally, you have to have goodness. And so that's going to be spiritual formation, right? That's going to be the devotional life of the parish, the rosaries we pray. It's going to be the availability of confessional, the confession, how I am as a confessor. It's going to be my own holiness. If you don't have a holy priest, it's going to be hard to have a holy parish, which is scary, but it's the way it is. It's going to be, again, homilies and all of these things. So truth, beauty, goodness. Those are the things we have to do well. Otherwise, we'll never renew ourselves. All right, so now we'll get down to it. And so a series on the Mass. The first thing I think you should start with is the building, the church, because that's where the Mass takes place. And you have to ask yourselves, what is a church? What is the purpose of this building? Why is it built the way it is? Because anytime you start a parish, and anytime you want to celebrate Mass, you're going to have a building. And so, you'll see here on number two, the church building. What is the church building? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves. And sort of the technical definition would be it is a physical manifestation of the mystical body of Christ. That's a fancy term, but that gives me a chance to expound upon it, right? It's a physical manifestation. The church is physical. You can go punch that wall and you will feel it. I wouldn't do it. It's brick, but you can. It's physical. It's material. And it's a manifestation of what? The mystical body of Christ. Ultimately, the church is the body of Christ. But because we're material creatures and we exist in time and in place, we have to have manifestations of that. There has to be a visible manifestation of the body of Christ. And that is what the church building is. All right, so turning the page now to A, right out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
Visible churches, so again, visible, physical, are not simply gathering places. So we can gather anywhere, but a church is more than that. But signify and make visible the church living in this place, the dwelling of God with men, reconciled and united in Christ. So the church is making visible something. It is making visible that God dwells among us. Continuing on in the catechism, this is a church, a house of prayer. So the church is a house of prayer. We should pray here. In which the Eucharist is celebrated and reserved. You should have the Eucharist. Where the faithful assemble, you guys should come. And where is worshipped the presence of the Son of God, our Savior, offered for us on the sacrificial altar, right there, for the help and consolation of the faithful. This house, notice, ought to be in good taste and a worthy place for prayer and sacred ceremonial. In this house of God, the truth and the harmony of the signs that make it up should show Christ to be present and active in this place. So there's a ton there, but that's the theology of the building. So notice that the church, the house of God, should make should show Christ to be present, should show Christ to be active among his people. The church, as a physical manifestation of the mystical body of Christ, should look like a church. And that's one of the key things we have to realize. You want to walk into a church and know you're in a house of prayer. And you want to know that you're in a sacred place. And you want to know that you're in a Catholic place, a Christian place, because you're manifesting Christ, not somebody else. And so the church has to look like a church. On Mondays, which is kind of my day off, kind of not, but I always get away for a couple, well, sometimes. Most of the time I get away for a couple hours. You will find me pretty much at one of two places. And you will find me not in my cleric, so if you see me, say hi, but be subtle because I don't want to be seen. You will, <laughs> you will find me either at the Basilica of St. Josephat or at Holy Hill. I go to the two most beautiful churches I know. And last Monday, or two Mondays ago, when I walked into the Basilica, I was thinking about what I was going to talk to you guys, and everything about the Basilica of St. Josephat in Milwaukee screams of God and screams of the transcendent. You walk into the Basilica of St. Josephat and you wonder to yourself, have I walked into heaven? The ambiance tells you it's a church. And then you look around and you see saints and you see angels and you see Latin phrases saying pater, filius, et spiritus santus, the Holy Trinity. And you see written on the walls the various virtues like faith, hope, and love. You know where you are. And that's what a church should do. It should express what it is. That's the classical definition of beauty. If something is beautiful if it expresses what it is. A church has to do that. And so think now for a second. Think about like your dining room at your house. Your dining room is going to have two components. It's going to have a practical component. You've got to have space. You probably have a table. You probably have chairs. You may have a cabinet with plates and glasses. That's because you eat there. And so it should, it should facilitate that. It should assist in that. So a church should facilitate and should assist and, to, and should help you pray. That's one of the reasons why I have a crucifix on the altar. It helps me pray. Because I'm offering the sacrifice of the Mass. It's nice to look upon the Lord and Him crucified. It reminds me of what I'm doing. So when trick-or-treaters are walking by out there, I don't see alligators or whatever I saw on All Hallows' Eve. Church has to help you pray. That's what has to do that. But notice your dining room also is going to have 
sort of an impractical component that is designed to psychologically sort of set the mood or the ambiance. I think of the dining room back in California, and I always complain to my mother that when I visit, we don't use the dining room, we eat at the kitchen table, but when my older sister comes, then we eat in the dining room, right? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. My mom is, good, is listening to the recording. She's gonna be having a fit right now. Sorry, mom, sorry. <laughs> and next time I come home, I guarantee you we'll eat in the dining room, so. But there's an ambiance. We have a chandelier in the dining room and it has those little lights that look like candles. Those are not the most practical lights. You can get better lights than that, but that's not the purpose. It's supposed to have an ambiance that helps you eat and helps you have a family meal together. It's the same thing with sort of fine china, right? It's an ambiance. So you have a practical component, but then you have sort of a psychological component. And a church should have the same thing. It should have a practical component, but then it should have a, a psychological component that sort of sets the mood, an ambiance that helps you pray, that reminds you you're in the presence of God and in sacred things, that reminds you of truth, beauty, and goodness. So you have practical, and then you have ambiance. And I always say this, the bottom of my chalice is decorated. And I always say, if you don't understand why I would decorate the bottom of my chalice, you don't understand the mass. No one sees the bottom of my chalice. If I've worked out that day, I can't even lift up my arms high enough. I don't see it at the elevation, but it's for God. And so it can be impractical, and that's okay, because God knows it's there, and I try and give the best to God. Or it's like the old saying story that there was a woman, one of the volunteers, you know, the holy volunteers that keep this place running, and she was dusting the candlesticks in the church, and the priest walks through, because that's what priests do, you know, we walk through and we meddle. And the priest walks up to the lady and he sees her dusting the bottom of the candlestick and he says, why are you doing that? Nobody sees the bottom of the candlestick. And the lady says, well, Satan does. She gets it, she gets it. And so not everything in a church has to be practical and that's okay because it's for God. There's a holy impracticality to the mass. Remember that. It's impractical, but it's holy. It's for a purpose, not just practical. And I know that's hard because we are Western capitalists and everything we want to do is efficient and capital and um, capitalistic and efficient and all of that. It doesn't have to be. All right. So that's the general notion of a church. And then now we'll look at some of the Old Testament images of the church. So Christ always fulfills the Old Testament. The New Testament fulfills the Old, and so anything in the New Testament, you're going to see figures of it, foreshadows, allegories of it in the Old Testament. And the same thing of the church. And so the early Christians, who were extraordinarily brilliant and had great memories, they were really good at this because they had read sacred scripture and they could hold the whole thing in their mind, and so they would catch these images. And so here are some of them. So the first one, the first image allegory of the church is the Garden of Eden. So if we look at Genesis 1 through 3, what we'll notice is a few attributes of the Garden of Eden. It's a place of order. There is freedom from sin. There is harmony between all created things. There is communion, adjoining between heaven and earth. God walks in the midst of the garden. He is present to his people. And notice it's in the east. And I'll get back to that. That's important. So a church 
has a fulfillment of the Garden of Eden is going to have those elements. It should be a place of order. So the fact that my roof leaks is problematic on the practical level, but if you think about it, it's also problematic on the theological level because that is disordered. Trust me, it's very disordered. It's frustrating. It keeps me up at night. Kept Father Nathan up, now it's my turn. But that's not ordered. So you want to build your church right, just on a practical level, because it should be ordered and there should be harmony in the church. You don't want sort of to cut corners. I say that in a round building, right? But that's not what I mean. You don't want like a shoddy looking building. It should be a place of harmony, of order. You also see a lot of times you have natural imagery in churches. You'll see like vines or grapes. It's a reflection of the Garden of Eden. This is also why the church's preference is always for natural materials in the church. It doesn't want synthetic things because ultimately, I quote the shepherd or Hermes in an early document, the world was created for the sake of the church. And so through our worship at mass, we're offering to God the created order, the best that we can offer. And so we offer him created things. So it's better to have vestments made of natural things than synthetic things. That's why we want to have natural flowers and candles made from beeswax. It's all going back to this notion of Eden and the natural order. And then you notice here, see John Paul II, his letter to artists, he says, the opening pages of the Bible present God as a kind of exemplar of everyone who produces a work. The human craftsman mirrors the image of God as creator. Another reason why you have sort of natural things, because you're imitating God. Right? If you carve a vine onto a piece of wood, you're imitating God who created that vine. All right. Other Old Testament images. You see places of refuge in the Old Testament. So the place of refuge par excellence in the Old Testament is, of course, the Ark of Noah. And so the early Christians recognized that the Ark was a foreshadow of, Christ, of uh, the church. So just as it was through the Ark that eight souls survived the flood, it is by taking refuge in the church that we sort of navigate the chaos of the world, the waves and the storms of the world, and sail safely back to heaven. And so the place where you are sitting now to this day is called the nave. That's from the novice, which is a Latin word which means ship. So you are sitting in a ship. It's also why traditionally and preferably, churches would always be built facing east. So remember, the Garden of Eden was in the east. We were cast out of the Garden of Eden because of sin. And now through the church, we are sailing back to paradise. So imagine the way that mass used to be celebrated. You'd have the priest and the person of Christ, and then you'd have the people behind him, and they're all facing east. It's because Jesus Christ is now leading you back to paradise. And so you are in the ship, and you're sailing back to paradise. So you want to go east. You don't want to go west. That's the wrong way. Turn around. Go east. Some other places of refuge. You see the houses of the chosen people? So in Exodus, it talks about how the Israelites would take refuge in houses and they would mark the doorposts with blood and the angel of the Lord passed over them. Again, people saw in that the church. We take refuge in the church so that the angel of the Lord may not strike us down in divine, ref in divine vengeance. Take refuge in the church. Or another one you see in the book of Joshua, the house of Rahab. When they were getting ready to attack Jericho, the oldest city in the world, you can still go there. I went there a few years ago. It was not a great experience, but that's, it wasn't Jericho's fault. 
But when they were taking Jericho, some Israelites took refuge in the house of Rahab. And I have this passage here, and it talks about how they would tie a scarlet cord in the window through which Rahab was letting them down when they were leaving the city. And that's how they would know that was her house, and they would not attack it. Rahab helped some spies, some Israelite spies. And so when Israel then attacked Jericho, they saw the scarlet cord hanging out of her window, and they didn't attack her house. And so the early Christians saw the scarlet cord hanging out of the window like the blood dripping out of the side of Christ, an image of the church. We are marked with the blood of the lamb, the blood of Christ, and so you can take refuge. The image par excellence of the Old Testament of the church is the meeting tent and then the temple. And so you had the tent of meeting Moses when Israel was going around in the desert. This is where God's footstool was, the Ark of the Covenant. And what Pope um, Benedict notices very well is that the tent of meeting, when God gives instructions on how to build it, it mirrors the way in which God created the Garden of Eden. So it was like the Garden of Eden was the first temple, and then the meeting tent was like the new temple. And so he gives various things, but the things I think you want to notice are down there B. You had the Ark of the Covenant, you had a table, and you had a menorah. They were all made out of pure gold. Notice you don't give God cheap metal. You don't give God particle board or whatever they had the equivalent of. You don't give God the ancient world equivalent of Ikea furniture. There's nothing wrong with Ikea. This is recorded. I don't want to be sued. But it's not the best. You gave God gold because that was the best you could do. Think about me decorating the bottom of my chalice. It's the best I can do. You also, again, the ark was plated in gold inside of out. It had two cherubim that faced each other. Next time you go into the Adoration Chapel, notice something. The monstrance is sitting on what's called a tabor. There's two angels facing each other. What that is designed after is the old Ark of the Covenant. Two cherubim would face each other, and it was said that the presence of God was right between them. So now we put a monstrance there. So Jesus Christ is right between the two cherubim. That's why we did that. Again, turning the page to number three here. You see... An acacia wood table adorned with good with gold. So you have wood, a natural material, adorned with wood. And upon this was the showbread, and you had a menorah, and it was designed with flowery elements and almond-shaped cups. So again, you have this natural sort of beauty. You have this imitation of the natural order, an imitation back of paradise. The human person, when they build their temple, is trying to imitate the Garden of Eden because that's where we want to get back. Then you see linens of violet, purple, and scarlet. These were the most expensive materials they had. This was the best they could offer to God. So you want to give God the best. That's the best. All right. Then, so Israel had the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. And eventually, when Israel came to the Promised Land, they built their temple. And the book of Hebrews calls the temple on earth an image of the heavenly temple. And so, you should pay attention to it, right? So you see courtyards. This is where you get the idea of a narthex, right? It's a transition point. Then you have this holy place, the holy of holies right in the middle of the temple. And again, you have cedar. It's carved. It has open flowers. Again, natural elements. Then you had the veil between the holy of, of holies and the holy place. And this veil would be a big curtain. 
And it symbolized where heaven and earth met. In the Holy of Holies was God, the Ark of the Covenant and God, and then on the other side was earth. And this veil was supposed to be the border between the two. It's why sometimes you see mass celebrated with candles across the front of the altar. It's imitating the veil. That like you have Jesus Christ on this side, and then you have the veil. And then if you think about it, when it's time to distribute communion, I take Jesus Christ out of the Holy of Holies, and I bring him to you. Essentially, God the Father is taking his son and breaking through the veil and handing him to you so he may enter your heart. That's the purpose of the candles across the front of the altar. It's a veil. And then Jesus comes to you, the incarnation. All right. I'm going longer than I thought. So we'll skip down to C, where it says, Christ, the fulfillment of these signs. So it's like I tell the school kids, the answer is always Jesus Christ. In the past age, in this age, in any age, when in doubt, just yell Jesus, you'll be all right. Everything points to Jesus, right? He is the temple par excellence. Remember, in the Old Testament, the temple was the presence of God among his people. Jesus Christ, a literal translation of John 1.14, pitched his tent and dwelt among us. God's present among us in the human body of Christ. His body, then, is the true temple. Number three, has the high priest, he passes through the holy place with his own blood. The, only the high priest was allowed to break that veil of the sanctuary and enter into the holy of holies. And so Jesus Christ, you see this in the letter to the Hebrews, he's presented as the high priest who like enters into heaven, the heavenly temple, and offers himself. So Jesus Christ is ultimately the true temple, but Jesus Christ is no longer among us. He is in heaven. He is in the heavenly sanctuary. And so the church should manifest Jesus Christ, who's always the answer, who is the true temple, but it should also point to heaven. Your church should remind you where you are going, which I hope is heaven. That's why I don't put flames on the wall. That would be a bad omen for you. It should imitate heaven. That's why you put saints in your church, because that's where you're going. That's why you put angels in a church, because that's where you're going. That's why you put images of the Holy Spirit and of the kingdom, because that's where you're going. And so the order for the dedication of a church, which is the book you use when you dedicate a church, we would have done this in the 1960s, it says, because the church is a visible building, physical manifestation, this house is a special sign of the pilgrim church on earth, that's us, and an image of the church dwelling in heaven. So the church is where heaven and earth meet. It's like the temple in the Old Testament, right? God's presence among his people. Within our church, heaven and earth meet. Because we are still on earth, if you haven't noticed. But God is among us. And the saints and the angels are among us praising the Lord. Heaven and earth meets here. So, you think of what the temple in heaven looks like. And the book of Revelation tells us, you have the Lord God seated upon a throne, a slain lamb, so you should see that in the earthly church. If you don't find these things, you're in the wrong church. So you should see our Lord sitting upon a throne. That's the altar. He should be slain. This is my blood. This is my body. You should see a river of life giving water, flowing from God and from the Lamb. Think of the waters of baptism. Think of the graces that flow from the Mass. You should see an altar surrounded by angels in the white-robed souls of the just. When I asked the school kids, where do you see this? The fourth graders jumped up and down and said at Mass, there's an altar and there's people wearing white surrounding it. 
We do that for a reason. We're pointing to heaven. You also look in the book of Revelation when it describes the heavenly temple. You have natural elements. You have lightning and thunder, trees and precious stones. Again, this is why we have natural candles and natural flowers. And this is why my vestments are made out of natural fibers. We're imitating something. And then ultimately, it's the heavenly city, right? The stone. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Revelation. This should be a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven upon earth. And I'll stop right there, and we'll take a five-minute break. So I'm on the page with the dark line across it. So that all of that was sort of the theology of a church building in general. And now I will look for however much time I have at some of the specific parts of a church. And that's what Chris Carson does in the first chapter of your book. He talks about the structure of a church in general, and then he gives you sort of a devotional way about how you should walk through the church door, which is pretty cool. It's very practical. It's the nice thing about that book is it's extraordinarily practical, and then I sort of just add around it. So the parts of the church, you have the building itself, which I gave you the theology. I should also point out that when a church gets dedicated, it goes through the sacraments of initiation. So the first thing the bishop does is he sprinkles holy water around the church. So think of baptism, right? You all went through baptism. Then he goes around and he anoints in 12 places for the 12 apostles, the walls of the church, just as you got anointed with confirmation. And then the mass is celebrated in the church, its first Eucharist. So it's like the church just received its first communion. So it goes through the sacraments of initiation. After that, the church building should do the three, what are called munera. The three munera are the offices of Christ. Munera in Latin means offices. Priest, prophet, king. So as a priest, Jesus Christ sanctified the world. So your church building should sanctify the world. If this building is not making the world holy, we are failing. The prophetic office of Christ teaches, so that teaching, words of wisdom, as the book of Malachi says, should come forth from this building. Priest, prophet, king, there's an administrative element, a governing element. The church is sort of the center of church governance in this area, right? All right, then you have the door, number two. That symbolizes Christ. Chris Carson goes into great detail at this. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, whoever enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Christ is also the one that unlocks for us paradise. Remember in the book of Genesis, when we get cast out of Eden, paradise is locked and there's a cherubim with a revolving sword. It is through Christ that we enter back into paradise. And so Chris Carson points out that the front door of your church should be be decorated. It should be sort of, it should stand out. It, sh it should be noticed because it is an image of Christ. When you walk through the front door of your church, you should be thinking Christ. Through my baptism, I've been united to Christ and through Christ, I can now enter into paradise. Through Christ, I can enter into the presence of God. And so you should have a nice front door. I know we don't have one here and I don't mean to criticize this place, but my guess, my guess is it was a practical decision. Remember I talked about holy impracticality. That front door is very practical. It works very well. You press the little plate, the door opens, it's easy to lock, all that. It's very practical, but they forgot the second element. It should be ambiance. It should point to something. It should point to Christ. It should, 
You can put the Alpha and the Omega in front of your door. That's good. That reminds you of Christ. You can put a cross. That reminds you of Christ. You can put angels because they surround Christ. Something that when you walk through the door, you remember that you're leaving the secular world behind and you're walking into a sacred space because Jesus Christ died for you and Jesus Christ gives you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's the front door. I remember at uh, St. Anthony's, we had a statue of St. Michael above the main door of the church. Reminds you, that was important. St. Michael was standing guard over the house of Christ. It's wise. The baptismal font. So traditionally, a baptismal font would be eight-sided. One, two. The bottom portion has eight sides. I know I've counted that before. The reason it was eight-sided is Jesus Christ rose on a Sunday, which was the first day of the week. The Jewish Sabbath was Saturday. Jesus Christ rose on the eighth day. And so the number eight always stood for the resurrection. And so you think about what happens in baptism. You are united to the death of Christ. And we used to dunk people. You got this, right? When you're underwater and the priest is holding you underwater, you're in the tomb with Christ. You're in the darkness. And then he lifts you up and you've come forth from the tomb with Jesus Christ. You have risen. That's what the eight-sided reminds you of. Through baptism, you're united with the resurrection of Christ. Traditionally, the baptismal font would be placed near the entrance in the back. And the reason for that is because it is through baptism that you enter into the church, the mystical body of Christ. And so you'd be baptized right outside the main door, and then the priest would process in. And before 1960s, in the old rite, the priest would actually flip his stole. His first, he'd be wearing a stole, the thing that, you know, I wear, and it would be purple. And then you would be baptized, and then he would flip it to white, because now you've risen from the dead. Now you've been cleansed. Now we rejoice because you are a child of Christ. And then you process into the church, because now you've entered the church. There's also, if you notice, and they did this right, your baptismal font and your altar should match. The reason for that is what does everything point to? Remember I complained about this early on. Sometimes we forget that it's parish. Everything should point to the Eucharist. Everything should point to the most holy sacrifice of the Mass. So that includes baptism. You, you are baptized. You are educated in the, in the Catholic faith. And ultimately you receive First Communion. Because in the sacrament of the Eucharist, you receive Jesus Christ himself. That's what you were made for, to be united to God. <clears throat> That's what the Eucharist does for you. So it matches the altar. The ambry, which is the, the holder of oils, as I always call it. It's right over there for us. We're getting a new one in the renovation that looks beautiful. It holds three oils. It's called the oil of catechumens. When you get baptized, I anoint you with that early on because you've been anointed like a warrior to go forth and fight with Christ. So it's like Satan doesn't want to get you, doesn't want you to get baptized. And so I anoint you with an oil so that you can fight off Satan and make it to baptism, right? Which is like two minutes later, but Satan's strong. So you got to fight him. It's funny, the early church fathers, they give these like brilliant images of like demons holding people back from baptism. And it's like, you got to anoint them so they can fight free and get there. You also have sacred chrism. Chrism is the mark of being set apart in sacred scripture. That means you've been made holy, set apart for God, and you've been also given some sort of duty or an office. So in baptism, you've now been given the duty, the office of being a Christian, and you've been set apart for God. 
At my ordination, my hands were consecrated, were anointed with chrism, because they're set apart to hold the Eucharist, to hold over your heads, as I say, I absolve you from your sins, to someday anoint you when you're on your deathbed. My hands are no longer my own. They belong to God and to you. That's why they're anointed. Chrism's also the one that smells nice because it has balsam. So the easy way to always make sure you grab the right one is just smell it. And then, fi <laughs> and then finally, you have the anointing of the sick again. That references sort of the olive branch in sacred scripture, a healing thing. Also, the fact that on the ark, when Noah sent out the bird, it brought back an olive branch. That meant the waters were receding. The earth has been healed, right? So that's always olive oil. I mentioned the nave already, number five, the part where you are sitting, the ship sailing back to paradise. You have the sanctuary. The sanctuary is like the new holy of holies. This is where God literally dwells. He's right behind me, and, pretty, and tomorrow morning he'll be on the altar, holy of holies. And so the germ, which is, stands for the general instruction for the Roman Missal, so the book I use at Mass is called the Roman Missal, and the church gives what's called a general instruction for it. It's like further instructions on how to use the Roman Missal. And it says that the sanctuary should be appropriately marked off from the body of the church either by its being somewhat elevated or by a particular structure and ornamentation. You should know it's the Holy of Holies. The rail, right? Think of the altar rail. It marks it off. Think of the fact that it's up high. Marks it off. You have steps. Back in the old mass, you said a prayer when you were climbing the steps. You would say, remove from us, we beseech you, O Lord, our iniquities, so that we may merit with pure minds to go to the Holy of Holies through Christ our Lord. Amen. That's what you would say as a priest when you would ascend the steps. You're coming to the Holy of Holies. You're about to kiss the altar. There's relics in that altar. The saints and God and the angels are here. So it should be marked off. You have the ambo. That's where I'm at here. The ambo is where the word of God should be read. And the ambo should be stationary. You shouldn't be able to move it. Why? Because the word of God is fixed. Because the word of God is the unchangeable truth. You can't move the word of God. So the ambo from which the word of God is read should be fixed. should be stationary. And notice how this ambo matches the altar. The reason they did that is because the word of God is Jesus Christ. And the word of God, which is read here, is the same word, Jesus Christ, the word par excellence, which sits on the altar in the Eucharist. So they match them for that reason. The altar. The altar is the image of Christ. It's why I bow to the altar. I'm bowing to Christ. You genuflect to the tabernacle because Jesus Christ is substantially present there. He is there under the appearance of bread and wine. He dwells among us. So you genuflect to it in adoration. The altar is an image of Christ. It sort of points you to Christ. It reminds you of Christ. It stands for Christ. So you bow your head in reverence to it. I also kiss it at various times during the Mass. The altar should occupy a place where it is truly the center towards which the whole attention of the congregation of the faithful naturally turns. When you walk into the church, the first thing you should see is the altar, because upon that dwells Christ, and it's an image of Christ, and Christ is always the answer. Christ, 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 the altar. So it's the center. You put candles around it. You put crosses on it. You put a white cloth on it. You make it out of fine marble. Christ. All of that should point towards Christ. When the altar is dedicated, 
it also goes through the sacrament of initiation. So the first time you use an altar, you sprinkle it with holy water, it's baptized. You anoint it with chrism. Back in the day, you used to anoint it in five places, the four corners, and then you would anoint the center where you were gonna put the relic of the saint. Think of the five wounds of Christ. That's what it symbolized. And then you celebrate the Eucharist on it so it receives its first communion. Just like the church, the altar goes through all the sacraments of initiation. In the altar, there are relics. I don't, I should have double-checked this. I don't know which relic of the saint we have in here. I know the new altar will have a relic of St. Francis Cabrini. Um, one of the two churches, either St. Mary's or Cabrini, has some obscure Roman martyr, but I don't remember which one. But the reason you put a relic in the altar is because it's reminding you that this is heaven on earth. And so you see in Revelation, the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the witness they bore to the word of God. So traditionally, you would put a martyr in the altar because it's reminding you of the death of Christ and the fact that the martyr by dying witnessed with their blood to Christ. And so they partook in a profound way in his passion. And so it's fitting that you would have the sort of a um, martyr. Then you have the celebrant chair. This goes back to like the, the chair of Moses, which you hear our Lord mention when he talks about the Pharisees. It's supposed to signify the function of, that the priest is presiding over the people, gathering their prayers, directing their prayers. Ultimately in, Christ, in mass, I don't act as Kevin Harmon. That, that person is supposed to die. I'm supposed to act as Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus Christ is worthy of a throne. So that's why the presider has a chair. It's because I'm in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't deserve a throne. I should sit on the floor, but Jesus Christ does. And so when I'm acting in the person of Christ, I sit on the chair. And then finally, in the very, very center, you have the tabernacle, the dwelling of God upon earth. And you see again the, the general instruction. It says it should be truly noble. It should be prominent. It should be conspicuous. It should be worthily decorated and it should be suitable for prayer because they want you to come and adore the Lord. The tabernacle should usually be the only one because there's only one Jesus Christ. He's just one. So you don't want to have 17 tabernacles around, right? There's one Christ. It should be ir irremovable because Jesus Christ is a rock. He's the rock of God. It should be made of solid and inviolable material that is not transparent because sacred things are hidden. And think of the Holy of Holies, how there was a veil. Sacred things are hidden. And it should be locked away so that the danger of profanation is prevented to the greatest extent possible. So you can't get in there and abuse the Blessed Sacrament. So you see the practical element there. And then finally on the last page, I just put a picture of the high priest and wearing his vestments and sort of what they symbolize. I won't go into it, but you should see what a high priest would look like back in the day. So I'm at 49 minutes, so I, I will take questions for 11 minutes or for a shorter if you don't have any questions. So do you have any questions? And maybe I will come down if you have questions so I can hear you. You can raise your hand. Yes. So on my left arm, I wear what is called a maniple. The maniple was probably started out as a practical garment. Remember, there's always this element of practical and spiritual. Because Romans, on their left arm, would wear napkins. And so a priest probably wore a handkerchief on his left arm and would have hung there. 
That's $80 silk, so I don't wipe my sweat with that anymore. Over time, it took on a symbolic meaning. It stands for the tears and the labors of the priesthood, the maniple. Broadly speaking, and I have to say that because this is recorded and some seminarian will hear it and then he'll start being nitpicky. Broadly speaking, seminarian, there are three vestments, three styles of vestments. There are what are called Gothic vestments. Those are the long, flowy ones that you're used to seeing. Those became very, very popular after the Second Vatican Council. You do see them in pictures in the 30s and 40s, but they were not sort of the most popular. But nowadays, for a while, they were the most popular. You have, which my gold vestment is, what is called a Philip Neri style vestment. And it has like partial sleeves. And it kind of flares out a little bit. That was the vestment that was mandated after the Council of Trent. So Trent didn't like that vestments were getting short and cut really small. And so they mandated like measurements and all of that. And so that style was called Philip Neri, who lived right after the council. And then you have the one that you see me in the most, which is called a Roman vestment. Sometimes it's called a fiddleback because the front looks like a fiddle. And if you're celebrating Mass ad orientum, then that would be the back. So you have a fiddleback. And that vestment was very, very popular in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And the reason it became popular is because vestments were starting to become heavily embroidered. And back in the day, you'd have hand embroidery and you'd often use gold thread. That's very, very heavy. And so what they did is they cut the arms, right? So the priest could move his arms and then they cut the sort of the length and everything of it so you could move. So that's a Roman style vestment. All three can be worn, um, some of its style. The Roman style vestment's coming back. Practically, it's much cooler. Like, you get a nice breeze, it's just great. <laughs> I get very hot in here, and every Catholic sanctuary puts these spotlights that just roast you. It's very unpleasant. So if you ever walk in, you complain because the church is cold, that's because it's 10 degrees warmer up here, so. Practical, any other questions? All right. Why churches, why churches face west? Why this church face west? Well, what ends up happening is you want to build your church facing east, but the plot of land that is available doesn't allow you to do that. And so they would talk about liturgical east, which is like, well, we had to face west because that's the only piece of land we could find. But theologically, we're facing east. So that's almost always pra was just the way that's what they had to settle with. Because at the end of the day, there's always a practicality. Ah, that's a good question. So what do you do with a church that you no longer use? It goes through a rite where it's essentially like deconsecrated. And then it's set aside for not for profane use. So it gets sold essentially to somebody who promises, or there's some agreement I think where they won't use it for like, yeah, like bad things. But it essentially gets deconsecrated. It's like you were a sacred place, now you're no longer. Um, yep, so you bow to the altar. So if there were no tabernacle, let's say the tabernacle was back in the corner, then you would bow to the altar. The reason they moved the tabernacle to these spaces, their intention, whether or not this worked is irrelevant. Well, it's relevant, but I'll just... The intention was they wanted adoration chapels. And so they had this notion that if we move the tabernacle back there, then people can always go back there and pray and adore the Lord. It was supposed to facilitate Eucharistic adoration. I don't think it did. 
but that's what it was supposed to facilitate. So if the Eucharist was back there, then you would just bow to the altar. With, because Jesus is in the tabernacle, substantially present, then you genuflect. It sort of triumphs or um, trumps the altar. So when I walk in, I genuflect. I don't bow to the altar because the tabernacle trumps it. Now, it gets a little strange during Mass because the rubrics with Mass are a little... They're just a little strange. During Mass, essentially, you genuflect at the beginning and the end of Mass, and then everything during the Mass, it's almost like you treat the altar as the center because that's the center of the Mass. And so, like, you'll notice my guild servers are excellent at it. Whenever they cross over, they bow to the altar because, essentially, you're... I don't want to use that phrase, but it's what it is. You're kind of ignoring the tabernacle during Mass because the altar is the center of Mass. So you genuflect at the beginning to acknowledge it, and then that sort of covers you through Mass. And then you genuflect on your way out. But then during the Mass, every time you cross, you should bow to the altar. So these are called fan-shaped churches. I don't know. It depends. You will get various reasons for why we went the fan-shaped route. I mean, traditionally, like St. Mary's is perfect. It's in the shape of a cross. So if you were looking straight down, you'd see a cross. It reminds you of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's sort of the traditional way, where you'd have a center body, then you'd have two transepts forming a cross, because that's what symbolizes Christ. The fan shape was usually a practical decision. It's easier for me to preach and to have a talk like this in a fan-shaped church, because I don't have to turn to transepts. Sound tends to look better. There was also this notion of like gathering around the altar, kind of in like more intense way. So that's kind of the reason they went the fan shaped. It makes it tough, I think, the fan shaped, because it's easy to forget you're in a church. That's, that's my biggest complaint with it, is it's almost like my living room too much, and this isn't my living room. But we're, when you're in that cross-shaped building, it reminds you. But I think those would be probably the arguments for the fan shaped church. They would be largely practical arguments. Because I don't know of any religious symbolism of a fan. If I am wrong, somebody can correct me. So the question was, what happened to the high altars, the Rarados? Again, whether or not we should have done this, I will leave to your discretion what happened. So, think of holy angels, right? Beautiful Rarados. So, you're celebrating Mass on that back altar, right? your eyes are naturally looking up and around. It's naturally looking at angels and saints and everything. What they wanted to emphasize, what their intention was, again, whether or not this worked, I will leave to your discretion. What they wanted to emphasize is that the altar, the altar itself is the center of the mass because that's where Jesus Christ is and that's where the sacrifice is happening. And the concern was that if you had these big, beautiful high altars, you would forget about Jesus Christ on the altar. Your eyes would sort of just lose it. I disagree with that, so I just gave you my opinion. But that's the sort of arguments you would have heard at the time, is why they got rid of them. I think an easy rebuttal to that is no, that's just bad catechesis. You remind the people that Jesus Christ is present there. You can put candles on it, and everything around it are just saints and angels, which remind you you're in a heavenly action. I think that's an easy rebuttal. That's why if I could, I would hand carve a giant high altar for you guys. But Father Nathan is doing the next best thing, right? 
with the, his idea of the renovation and the mural. The mural is essentially a step in for a high altar because we can't hand carve those anymore. Okay. Since for the people who are listening to the recording, that question was about carpet in the sanctuary. Car <laughs> There's an old saying among some of us uh, young priests and seminarians that you know carpets are for your living room, not sanctuaries. You'll hear various arguments for carpet in the sanctuary. Um, dead in sound. There was this huge um, thrust in the 1960s, and I've seen it like looking back in minutes for parishes of meetings that where they have with their worship committees, where they wanted to make the sanctuary like your living room. What they were going for there, to be fair to them, is they were trying to make sort of Jesus Christ accessible. And I think they went too far. And so they wanted you to be comfortable in church. And they wanted you to like sit with Jesus, right? And so yeah, we'll make the sanctuary like your living room because you're just sitting there having a meal with Jesus, which I think vastly underestimates what the mass is. And it vastly underestimates the aspect of worship and all of the things I talked about today with the temple and all that. But that also leads to carpet then, right? Because I have carpet in my living room. I don't have fancy tile. Well, actually, I don't know what we have in Kewaskum, but you know, you, you can make the, the judgment then. I think you don't want carpet for numerous reasons. One, I have put many holes in carpet because I like incense and the charcoal hits it and then you have a problem. I also think it looks too casual. I mean, I think if you have, like the beautiful tile we're gonna have that matches the Adoration Chapel, notice what he did. You have the same tile in the Adoration Chapel that you have in the sanctuary. So there's an immediate tie between Eucharistic Adoration and what's happening here. That's sacred, that's noble. That reminds you that you're in a sacred place. That's why I think you want it. They didn't put carpet in the temple, and they never would have, even if they had it. I don't even know if they had it, but they never would have done that because you just, you want natural materials if possible, and you want sacred things, and you want things of nobility and dignity because God dwells among you. So I'm not a fan, but you would have guessed that. All right. Well, that will wrap it up for the first week. So next week, We'll go into chapter two of Chris Carson's book. He talks about how to do the sign of the cross, and he talks about mystagogy. So I will talk about mystagogy, and I'll probably begin by defining that term. So Julie kindly put out food and drinks, and so you can take some on your way out, or you can socialize, you can do what you want. All right? I'll give you a blessing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.